Welcome back to Hummus Sailgate Party, everybody. I'm your host, Thomas Jackson, and that sound you're hearing is the sound of the Atlanta Braves winning back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back National League East Championships. Starting off on a high note this week, baby, we'll get into the week four recap and the, or the week five recap, pardon, and the week uh, six preview, as well as some big hot seat of the week updates with a couple firings this off season. And of course, rounding things off with another best bet winner. Sit back, enjoy. All right, we'll get started off this week with the game that was college game day last week. Uh, that is Clemson defeating NC State 30-20 to in Death Valley. Um, this game wasn't as sloppy as we thought it might have been um, with the tra- trajectory of Hurricane Ian changing throughout the course of the week. Thankfully, didn't hit that area super hard. Um, so it was a little bit more of a normal ball game, which in the long run, even though it's kind of fun to watch a sloppy rain-win game, um, you know, when, it, when it's in the moment in the long run, this gives us a more accurate feel for how these two teams actually stack up in a semi-normal atmosphere. Um, so that was nice. NC State kept it pretty close in the first half, but Clemson pulled away around the halfway point of the game. Um, Clemson held them to only 34 rushing yards, and in the second half, really, you know, the, the score makes it look a little bit closer than it was because NC State, it was 30 to 13 and NC State scored with a minute left to make it a little more respectable of a final score. Uh, DJ played a really clean game, very efficient in the air and on the ground after an offseason full of questions surrounding him and a bit of a shaky week one. He seems to have finally found his stride and is playing uh, up to the you know potential that a lot of people thought that he could. So I don't know that Clemson really is in the midst of a quarterback controversy like we thought they might be at this point in the season if he continued to struggle from last year. Um, Clemson got through a really tough uh, stretch of their schedule the last couple of weeks with Wake Forest on the road, that overtime win, uh, crazy game, and then NC State this week. Those are two really good teams, so props to Clemson on figuring their offense out in time to take on those opponents. And now they have a bye week before they resume ACC play in October. Uh, NC State, they're still 4-1 overall. Their ACC Atlantic hopes are probably done because they're essentially a game and a half behind Clemson since they're in the same division. But they could still go on and have a great 10-win season, and I'm still pretty high on the Wolf Pack. I think that they'll rebound from this and continue to play well. Next, we'll go to Fayetteville, where Alabama defeated Arkansas 49-26. to This was a really strange game. I'm guessing most people listening watched. Um, but it kind of flip-flopped from Bama dominating to Arkansas dominating to Bama dominating again at the end. Uh, Part one of that, Bama jumped out to an early 14-0 lead. Could have easily been 21-0 if it weren't for red zone interception uh, from Bryce Young to Trayshawn Holden on the very first drive of the game. But then the big news is that Bryce sprained his AC joint when getting chased down um, by Alabama's former player, Drew Sanders, who transferred to Arkansas and is playing really, really well. Jalen Milrow, the Alabama backup, Entered the game and uh, looked really sharp right away. He got the lead out to 28-0 pretty quickly 
He's more of a dual threat quarterback. He is super jacked. He looks like he could be a running back or, you know, even like a outside linebacker if he was a little bit taller. Um, but he did really well coming in. Um, thankfully, he didn't get thrown into a hornet's nest immediately with Bama having a 14-0 lead when he took over. Uh, but soon after, it did become a hornet's nest there on the road. Because Arkansas, after Bama went up 28-0, Arkansas scored 23 straight. So it went from 28-0 to 28-23. Bama's offense completely stalled in the third quarter, could not do anything. Arkansas got an onside kick that was executed to perfection. I've There are a few onside kicks that I've ever seen that uh, were smoother than that one. Really great job. The kicker recovered it himself. Totally caught Bama off guard. And then after that, when Bama went three and out deep in our own territory, uh, it was probably the worst snap I've ever seen in my life from the long snapper to the punter. And the punter had to just dive on the ball, and it gave Arkansas the ball uh, inside their inside the Bama 10-yard line. So everything was rolling there for Arkansas until they scored that touchdown, which made it 28-23, and they went for two to cut the game to a three-point um, deficit. And Bama stopped them on that. And I, then from there on, Bama found its groove, and we kind of enter the third part of this, where Bama outscores Arkansas 21-3 to in the fourth quarter alone. So that two-point conversion stop by Bama, at the time it didn't feel like they could stop Arkansas from doing anything, and even though it didn't end up being consequential in the final score of the game, it felt like not so much a momentum swing, but just keeping Arkansas from getting even more momentum because they already had basically all the momentum in the world on their side. So I think that was a big stop for Bama, that two-point conversion um, that will you know be forgotten as we look back on this game in the future. But I think that was a really big play. Um, the fourth quarter, Bama, it was turned it into a total track meet with three runs of over 70 yards, the biggest being Jalen Milrow deep in Bama territory on a third and 15 when it was still a five-point game, ripped off a 77-yarder, uh, got all the way down to the three-yard line, and that really uh, broke the game open for Bama. We knocked it in for seven uh, there from the three-yard line, and then we had two more runs from Gibbs and McClellan to tie, finish off the game there and uh, escape what could have been a very, very scary fourth quarter. Um, the Hogs put up a really good fight in a rivalry that's been one-sided for the past 15 years. I think this was Alabama's 16th straight win against them starting in Saban's very first year um it was a great atmosphere there in Fayetteville and I give them a lot of props for not just rolling over when it was 28 to 0 even when Bama had a backup quarterback uh when he came in and got two straight touchdowns it looked like it could have been a total route but the final score you know I mean Bama had control of more of this game than Arkansas did um but it was just a very strange outing um they, Arkansas just couldn't pull it together on offense and defense for long enough to, to hang with Bama for four quarters. But I think the Hogs, um, they go to Mississippi State this week, so another challenging game for them. But I think that should be a great ball game 
and uh, you know I think they should they should hold their heads high after this this matchup because I was at the Alabama bar in Denver watching this and the place got really really tense really really quick when that when that lead started to shrink so good game Arkansas it was a fun game to watch and uh, I think they'll have good success for the rest of the season Bryce Young. All we've heard from Saban is day-to-day thing. He's obviously not going to say that Bryce is out before the Texas A&M game just to make them prepare for both quarterbacks. I don't really think that he's going to play. I think Tennessee is the earliest that we could see him, but which Tennessee and Bama play the week after this upcoming Saturday. Um, but even then, is he going to be 100%? Probably not. Is he going to be able to launch the deep ball? Probably not. Um, not that Bama's hit too many of those this year to begin with, but it's just it's hard to tell um, with this sprain, and we'll just have to see what it is. But I expect it to be Milrow playing against A&M. Next, we go to a really weird one. Georgia defeated Missouri 26-22. Missouri had control of this game and the lead for almost the entire four quarters. They were able to move the ball pretty well uh, through the air and on the ground. They didn't have any turnovers, which is really impressive against a defense as stout as Georgia's. At the end of the day, in the second half, Georgia found a little life. They started really feeding their monster tight ends to get back in this game. And Missouri, even though they were still driving the ball all right, ended up kicking you know just one too many field goals that wasn't a touchdown. And they were really just hanging on for dear life there down the stretch. But I don't know what's up with Georgia. Um, This is their second kind of stinker in a row after they came out super flat against Kent State last week. I'm not really panicking. Um, You know, this happens to most teams during the stretch of a 12-game season. Um, So I think the dogs will be okay. But I expected them to come out way hotter than they did against Missouri after they were quite underwhelming against Kent State. But Georgia escapes with the win. That's what matters in the long run. Um, But Missouri being one of the worst teams in the SEC, hats off to them for coming out and putting up a fight when literally no one on earth (laughs) thought that they would be able to this week. Ole Miss defeated Kentucky 22-19. Kentucky really should have won this game. Of course they didn't. But Uh, They had two good chances at the end where they were driving in Ole Miss territory to take the lead. Both of those drives ended up in turnovers. Ole Miss had a 14-0 lead, and Kentucky fought back uh, to tie it up at 19. Um, Ole Miss kicked a field goal to go ahead in the third quarter, and that was their last score, um, or actually the last score from either team when Ole Miss extended the lead to 22-19 in the third. Both defenses really stepped it up in the second half, especially Ole Miss's with those couple of turnovers. Ole Miss has Vanderbilt and Auburn coming up, so they're looking at most likely a 7-0 start. I got to take my hat off to Kayshawn Moore, who was texting me about the Rebels before the season, saying that he, he could see them uh, winning their first six, seven, eight games. I didn't think so. I thought they would get tripped up by Kentucky personally. Ole Miss had a lot of turnover this year, but that just proves that Lane Kiffin is really doing a great job um, in Oxford. And they could be undefeated. I think it would be 9-0 going into the Alabama game when we play in mid-November. So 
Rebs control their own destiny. Um, Kentucky, this was their first loss of the season. So while they, uh, I guess, still control their own destiny in the East, um, this was a game that they definitely would have liked to have, especially with their opportunities at the end. But both teams played really well and fought hard, and it was close, just like we thought it would be. Oklahoma State beat Baylor 36-25. to Really impressive road W for the Cowboys. This was a rematch of the Big 12 title game last year, and these were my two teams that I picked to make it to the Big 12 title game this year. So I wouldn't be shocked to see both of these teams again playing in early December. Uh, Baylor had life early, but Oklahoma State stole it from him in the second half and really commanded the last couple quarters of this game. Oklahoma State, you know, I <laughs> We've talked about them before, but they really don't get enough credit for just being one of the most stable, consistent programs in the country over the last 10 years. They've never been able to tie everything together over the, you know, in one season, mostly because they always run in to Oklahoma and have a horrible track record against their in-state rivals uh, to end the year every season. But now they control their own destiny in the Big 12 and in the playoffs. So keep an eye on Oklahoma State. They weren't really someone that most anybody was picking to make to the make to the playoffs. But um, I thought Baylor would win this game this weekend, and Oklahoma State comes out, gets a double-digit victory on the road. So um, just keep an eye on them because they could be knocking on the door trying to steal a playoff spot here as we get later in the season from a, a team that everybody was – much more expecting to, to get in the Final Four. Baylor has a, had a slower start than I really imagined this year. They're 3-2 and two, uh, with losses at BYU and, of course, Oklahoma State. Um, but with the only one conference loss, they can still make it to Dallas for the title game uh, in the Big 12. So they still have a ton to play for and are still, in my mind, very much a contender for a New Year's Six Bowl. Mississippi State beat Texas A&M 42-24. Will Rogers balled out. This is what we've been waiting to see from the Bulldogs this season. Uh, he went for 329 yards in the air and a couple touchdowns. State forced four Texas A&M turnovers in this game, three of which were inside the red zone. One of them was a blocked field goal, which they scooped and scored for seven. Texas A&M... I mean, 24 points is probably more than they've scored all season, um, I guess, outside of their very first opener against Sam Houston State, but against any decent opponent. 24 points is pretty good for A&M, um, and they move the ball well. I mean, three lost opportunities inside the red zone. If you just take all of that away and don't get your field goal blocked in return for a touchdown, then we're probably talking about, you know, probably still a state win, but a one-score game for sure. So, I mean, I guess there's some encouragement there for the Aggies moving the ball a little bit better than we've seen. However, their quarterback, Max Johnson, if you remember him and Haynes King, their other QB, have been kind of going back and forth uh, all season after King started off the season as QB one, then Max Johnson took the rollover, um, and neither have looked good, frankly. Max Johnson, though, injured his hand in the fourth quarter and left the game. And then when Haynes King came in, he threw two picks in the fourth quarter. So that's not encouraging going into the Bama game for the Aggies. Um, I don't know the status. I haven't seen anything on Max Johnson, um, but. 
maybe we'll see Hanks King. I don't know. It's just it's too soon to tell. But keep an eye on that as we go into this upcoming Saturday. State is now four and one. Uh, their only loss being the pretty disappointing L that they took on the road to LSU after they had a pretty big early lead in that game. Texas A&M three and two. Lucky not to be two and three after the Arkansas crazy crazy ending. Um, and A&M's looking at most likely three and three after next Saturday when they play Bama. The Aggies owe Jimbo. Uh, Okay, my dog is choking. One second. All clear. <laughs> um, Texas A&M owes Jimbo Fisher somewhere in the 85-87 million dollars left on his contract. So it's going to be a long time before we can genuinely put him in the hot seat segment. Um, if his contract wasn't what it was, then we probably would be starting to talk about him. This is year five for Jimbo. Um, we, it, it should be happening by now. It feels like every year Texas A&M is just talking about the recruiting class and looking about you know what, what they're going to have next year. And while I didn't expect the Aggies to be great this year, I also didn't expect them to be possibly 500 after six weeks of play. Um, so they've got a lot to sort out with the offense. The defense has been playing pretty well other than this Saturday. Um, they're the only reason that Texas A&M has really been been in any game. But, um, oh yeah, here's this. After 53 games as the Texas A&M head coach, Jimbo Fisher and Kevin Sumlin have the same exact record at 37 and 16. So for Sumlin, you know, that was definitely not not so bad. But for Jimbo getting the hundred plus million dollar paycheck uh, when they when they hired him in College Station. It's they were expecting a lot better a lot sooner. So Texas A&M is probably looking at three and three and a lot of shit to sort out uh, the, the last six games of their schedule. So we'll talk more about them here in a little bit in the preview. TCU skull dragged Oklahoma 55 to 24. This has really been a nightmare start for the Sooners, dropping back-to-back conference games now. Um, their defense has been completely horrid. And if you remember, over the offseason, of course, Lincoln Riley, the offensive mastermind, left Norman for USC. And Oklahoma hired Brent Venables, who was probably the top assistant coach in the country to get hired for the past several years. He was Clemson's D.C., had a ton of amazing defenses there at Clemson. Um, and it's just not what it's just not working so far in Oklahoma. TCU quarterback Max Duggan threw for 302 yards, rushed for 116 yards, and accounted for five total touchdowns. Absolutely stellar performance. That TCU offense is really good. And when we're talking about Brent Venables, like yes, it's only year one. I'm not going to overreact and you know say that he's going to get fired after two or three seasons. But Sonny Dykes, the head coach of USC, USC uh, TCU, rather, who this is his first year. They hired him from SMU. He's an offensive guy, and you see how fast he has this offense absolutely rolling. Um, so 
while I don't expect Oklahoma to have any type of All-American defense in year one under, under Venables, I also don't expect them to give up 96 points over the past two weeks and 1,197 yards of total offense to TCU and Kansas State combined. So they've got a lot to figure out. They're going to have to play a lot more good offenses through their Big 12 schedule, obviously. Um, and if they, don't, if they don't get the defense intact, it could get pretty ugly pretty quick there uh, in Oklahoma. Now we'll hit on some games in a little bit quicker fashion. Michigan defeated Iowa 27-14. This was the first real test for J.J. McCarthy when it comes to playing a stout defense. The running game helped him out big time. Uh, Michigan didn't have too many problems with moving the ball on the ground against the Hawkeyes D. Uh, they played really well with no turnovers, which that's been Iowa's thing for the last many years, is even though their offense has never been – uh, average even. Um, the Hawkeyes always have one of the best turnover margins in the country, and that's how they get a lot of their points, whether it be through defensive or special teams scores or just setting their offense up with a super short field. So no turnovers for the young starter from Michigan is something that I was really impressed by. And before this Saturday, I know I know Iowa's been, you know, kind of the uh, – butt of all jokes of college football this season, but they have won five of their last six home games against top five opponents, which Michigan was, and now that moves to five of the last seven. So even though Iowa, weird team, never has an offense, so many turnovers and defensive scores, uh, this was still a tricky spot for Michigan to go and play on the road, especially with the young, pretty inexperienced quarterback. So I give the Wolverines, offense especially, a lot of credit there for getting the win in Iowa. Kansas defeated Iowa State 14-11. to Of course, um, Kansas will have – they'll finally get to host college game day for the first time ever this upcoming Saturday. A lot of people were upset that it wasn't this Saturday – uh, for the Iowa State game, but now it makes it even better because they have undefeated TCU coming to town. Kansas all season has had a really prolific offense. Their quarterback has been playing phenomenally. Uh, so this is really encouraging, not that they only scored 14 points, but that they were able to win a game in a defensive slugfest because you see a lot of these, especially Big 12 teams or Pac-12 high-octane offenses that don't have much of a defense and when they get punched in the mouth a couple times, then they kind of lose their whole game plan and don't know how to win a low-scoring close game. They're only comfortable with a 49-45 to 45 type of outcome where it's a lot of times just the last team that has the ball wins. So really impressive for Kansas to beat this Iowa State team that's been disappointing the last couple years, but still well-coached, very steady. Um, so the Jayhawks continue their undefeated run. Wake Forest with a really big bounce back, defeating Florida State on the road, 31 to 21 um, after their exhausting game, high scoring overtime loss to Clemson last week. Um, so that's really big for Wake Forest to come and bounce back and not just cripple down after a really devastating loss. Georgia Tech, probably the most surprising upset of the Saturday. They were three touchdown underdogs to Pittsburgh, and they beat the Panthers 26-21 to with their new interim coach. Uh, Illinois beat Wisconsin 34-10. to 
Brett Bielema is the coach of Illinois, and of course he was the coach at Wisconsin way back in the day. So this was his first time returning to Camp Randall uh, to face his former team, the Badgers. And because of this, uh, Wisconsin dismissed their coach after losing by 24 to Illinois at home, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the hot, hot seat segment. LSU defeated Auburn 21-17. Auburn got up 17-0 in the first half. And, of course, it wasn't that easy. This game is always weird. Everybody knows it. LSU came back and scored 21 straight to finish the ball game. Auburn's last score of the game came about five minutes into the second quarter and were completely shut down after that. Harson has a long track record of blowing second half leads, being completely inept on offense in the second half. I'm a little surprised they didn't let him go. Um, I'm recording this on Tuesday night and he's still there. Auburn plays Georgia next week, so good luck. Um, but yeah, LSU squeaks one out on the planes. Um, and that'll do it for the week five recap. Moving on to segments, who's not back of the week? Uh, this is Oklahoma's defense, as previously discussed, letting up 96 points and about 1,200 yards of total offense over the past two weeks to their in-conference opponents, Kansas State and TCU. The hot seat of the week presented by Lee Corso. Just a quick little recap, because we've had a lot of Power 5 coaches um, fired already, and it's only October 4th. Scott Frost dismissed in week two. Herm Edwards dismissed in week three. Jeff Collins was dismissed from Georgia Tech in week four. We didn't talk about this because I had a super fast episode last week. Um, but clearly the Yellow Jackets figured something out because they just defeated a good, or what we, we think they're good, Pittsburgh team uh, as a three-touchdown underdog. So congratulations to Georgia Tech on having a little bit of that post-firing bounce back. <clears throat> Now into the really good stuff. Paul Christ, Wisconsin's head coach, was dismissed on Sunday after their 24-point home loss to Illinois. He was not even on the hot seat list. Wisconsin has been uh, disappointing the last couple years, ever since Graham Mertz took over the reins in the COVID 2020 season. Um, and was, I mean, they've had good talent elsewhere. Really all Wisconsin needs is a serviceable quarterback and they always have the line play and the running backs and the defense to be really competitive in the big 10 year in year out. If their quarterback is just average, that was not the case with Mertz. Um, Paul Christ, he's been their coach since 2015. He went 67 and 26 in just over seven seasons with the Badgers, including a 43 and 18 uh, Big Ten record and three Big Ten West titles. Like I said, it's been all downhill since 2020. Uh, they went four and three in the COVID year, but you know that we can kind of consider that a wash. Um, last year they went nine and four, which doesn't sound terrible, but it was a disappointing year for them. They had higher hopes than that. It seemed like the Big Ten West was theirs to lose last year, and they did lose it to Iowa. Um, so even though it wasn't, it doesn't look bad. They they were hoping for more with the amount of talent that was returning in 2021, and this year they got off to a two and three start. Um, so. 
I don't know where they go from here. This is pretty abnormal uh, from such a stable program like Wisconsin to make this type of a move in the middle of the season. I was talking to my dad about this, and he is of the belief that they already have someone lined up if they went ahead to went ahead and did this. So maybe they're just trying to you know clear house and just go ahead and get ready uh, for the next guy coming in. They do have an assistant on their staff that is now the interim coach and expected to make a run for the head coaching job as well. So maybe they go that way. Maybe they go like a Matt Campbell or Lance Leipold, uh, who is the head coach at Kansas. And he's now the hot, hot new name, which I feel bad for Kansas. They get one little taste of success and instantly their coach is like the hottest guy in the country, but he deserves to be with all that, how quick he's turned that total mess of a program around so quickly. Um, So we'll continue to monitor that. I don't really know where they go from here as far as this season goes, um, but maybe they'll find a little post-firing boost just like Georgia Tech just did. The Colorado Buffaloes also fired their head coach, Carl Durrell. He took over in a really, really, really difficult situation in 2020. Um, Mel Tucker, who obviously just got close to a $100 million contract from uh, Michigan State, was the Buffalo's head coach. He was being looked at by a lot of bigger programs, but waited well into the offseason of 2019 going into 2020 saying, oh, no, like, I'm here to stay. We love it in Boulder, blah, blah, blah. And then he darts for Michigan State after National Signing Day in February of 2020. So that put Colorado at a huge disadvantage because the coaching carousel was essentially over. They went with Carl Durrell and he probably had the reins for two weeks before the whole world shut down with COVID. Not to mention a lot of that recruiting class ended up leaving and following Tucker to Michigan State or going elsewhere when their coach left on him like that. Um, So tough situation taking over a couple weeks before COVID started with all that offseason, especially in Colorado and the Pac-12. You know, they were pretty strict about all of their uh, requirements and rules during that summer and offseason leading up to the 2020 fall. Um, However, he only went 8-15 and in his barely – even like three, two and a half years uh, in Boulder. He was 0-5 this year. The Buffaloes are the only winless FBS team besides Colorado State. So we really rocking out here in the Centennial State. Um, But I don't know where they go from here. I don't know that people really care so much. I mean, I've lived in Denver for over three years now. And while Colorado's never been good in that stretch, it's, you know, it, it's obviously just a lot different culture than I'm used to growing up in the Deep South and the SEC, um, but I just don't know that they have the deep alumni pockets that are, well, they, they have them, but they're, I don't know that they're willing to just pour in the millions and millions of dollars to pay someone's buyout and get a really high quality head coach. So, I mean, I'm rooting for them. I've liked Colorado as kind of my second team ever since I got out here. It'd be nice just to see them get back to a respectable level. And even though when you're down this bad, it seems impossible, but just look at Kansas. You know, all it takes is just striking gold with the right guy, much easier said than done. Um, But it's such a cool 
school and program and you know back in the 90s they were competing for national championships year in year out and were pretty good on into the mid 2000s until they had some NCAA troubles that really set them back and they've never truly recovered only making three bowl games in the last 15 years so I really hope Colorado can figure it out um, but they've got they've got a long long hill to climb We'll go to the coaches that are still employed, but we don't know how how long uh, they'll still have their current jobs. Obviously, Brian Harson. We kind of touched on that already. After the Missouri, you know, quote unquote win, and then losing this game to LSU with the trip to Athens coming up. I mean, I don't know. Do you fire him? I figured after blowing a 17-0 lead at home, even to an opponent that's better than you and was favored over you, would probably be when they pulled the trigger because it seems like they were just chomping at the bits to do that if they were to lose the Missouri game. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if they fire him after losing to you know one of the best one, two, three teams in the country at Georgia. Do they extend this thing? on into October because the schedule is just hard from here on out. So I don't know how many wins are realistic for Auburn going forward this year, um, but obviously we'll be watching that one closely. Scott Satterfield at Louisville, he is his seat is getting hotter by the minute. They just lost to Boston College, who has been quite, quite atrocious this year uh, when Louisville was a two-touchdown favorite. They fall to two and three on the season, so a couple more losses. I wouldn't be surprised to see him go. Um, a new one, Neil Brown at West Virginia. He's never been able to get this thing rolling. The Mountaineers have started two and three and 0 and two in the Big 12. Uh, this was kind of a big year for him going in. You know, they had some new people on the staff to, to get settled in, but they also had a really highly touted quarterback in JT Daniels, and they were not able to keep the game competitive with Texas this weekend. So we're going to keep an eye on Neil Brown at West Virginia. And this one may be a bit of a flyer. I don't know that this is, and this is probably a bit of a reach, but David Shaw at Stanford, it's been a long time since they've had really any success. They are 1-3 this year and 0-3 in the Pac-12. Again, I don't know how many wins they're looking at for the rest of the season. So even though that he's done really great things there, kind of continuing the run that Harbaugh had, um, I don't know that a t program like Stanford is – going to chomp at the bit to let this type of a guy go, but maybe something to keep an eye on if the Cardinal can only squeak out a couple more wins and are far away from even thinking about making a bowl game by the end of the year. And we're taking someone off of the list that's been on for a long time. Dino Babers at Syracuse has finally figured it out. They are 5-0 and and into the top 25. The Orange are number 22. In a couple weeks, have a, couple, a big game against Clemson. So that one could be interesting, and we'll talk about it on the next episode. So that's it for the segments. We'll go into the Week 6 preview now. Congratulations to the Kansas Jayhawks. As discussed earlier, they are hosting College Game Day for the first time ever there in Lawrence, for football at least. Um, they are a six-and-a-half-point underdog to TCU. Kansas, after their win against Iowa State, just got into the AP Top 25 for the first time since 2009, coming in at number 19. That was the longest streak in the country by a Power 5 school 
to not be ranked in the top 25. So really happy for Kansas. This has been a great story, and I hope they can keep it going. It's going to be tough for them to keep up with TCU's high-powered offense that everybody saw last week and the big win against Oklahoma. But Kansas's defense showed up and were able to keep them in a slugfest with Iowa State. So I think this will be a high-scoring, really entertaining game. It kicks off at 11 a.m. I, I mean, <laughs> I thought Kansas would lose last week, and they didn't. I think they'll lose this week, and I hope they won't. So I'll be cheering for the Jayhawks, but hopefully we get a uh, high-scoring, really fun game here to start off the morning. Also at 11 a.m., we have number 8 Tennessee, who is a three-point favorite at number 25 LSU. The last time that they played in Death Valley, my old, old SEC fans will remember, was the 2010 game when Tennessee had 13 men on the field at the very end, and that ended up costing them the game. Um, That just shows you how poorly the SEC schedule is constructed, and here in a couple years, whenever Texas and Oklahoma come, and we inevitably move to nine games, I think it's really important that we don't go a dozen years before a team in your same conference comes back to your stadium. Just absurd, but, you know, not much longer of that BS. So, this line... I mean, it surprises me that it's only three, but it feels like a good game to just stay away from in that regard. Or maybe LSU is the the smarter play if it's that low of a line. I I mean, I'm I'm in on Tennessee this year. I think that they deserve all the hype that they've been getting. LSU, I still have some big questions. Even though they have come out and taken care of business after their week one embarrassment against Florida State, I still think Tennessee is uh, the superior team here. I think I forgot to mention it when I was talking about LSU-Auburn, but Jaden Daniels uh, was injured at the very end of that game and had to leave for the last few minutes. I haven't heard anything on him, if he'll be playing or not. Um, So that's something to keep an eye on, possibly if you're looking at this spread. I think Tennessee will win. I think they'll cover. I think they should cover. Um, But this just, you know, I mean, I guess they're lucky it's not a night game at LSU. I know all the LSU fans had their panties in a wad over that. But, you know, welcome to the life that the rest of us have to live every now and then, not getting six night games a year. Um, but it'll be really interesting. Tennessee, big look ahead spot hosting Bama after this Saturday. Um, so this is a big one for the Vols to come in and take care of business because they've definitely been the more solid team so far this year. Next, we go out to Pasadena, where number 18 UCLA uh, hosts number 11 Utah. The Utes are a four and a half point favorite. UCLA, both of these teams are coming off of really big wins. UCLA uh, beating Washington in a Friday night game where they just really, really drubbed them um, in the Rose Bowl. And Utah absolutely took care of business against Oregon State, who, if you've been listening, you know that we are high on and will remain high on because we're just also super high on Utah here at HTP. But I think... I'll probably be taking Utah in the points in this one. I think that they're just going to out-physical UCLA. And even though UCLA's offense finally came out and had a really good outing, like we've been expecting them to do for the past season and a half, um, I, I trust Utah on both sides of the ball um, to get this victory on the road. That's a 2.30 central kickoff. 
Now we go to Texas A&M and Bama. Uh, Bama's number two. Aggies are unranked. Bama's a 24-point favorite in this game. Uh, lot, lots of question marks. Lost all the stuff from the offseason. There's a lot to get to here. So Bama and A&M, we don't know who's starting for either team, even though I suspect it'll be Milrow and King. Um, we just haven't had any official word and probably won't get any until Saturday before kickoff because why would the coaches say anything like that, obviously? Um, there was the big Jimbo Saban press conference piss off, you know, that got all of the offseason media buzz and A&M signing one of the best recruiting classes in recent memory this offseason. Everybody was really high on them. Of course, the Aggies beat Bama in a shocker in College Station last year. Um, so this game had a lot of hype coming into this season. It was looked at as probably the number one regular season game before the season started. But now with all of Texas A&M struggles, it's, you know, game days in Kansas, not Tuscaloosa. So if that tells you anything about how their season is going. Um 24 points is a lot, and the Aggies' defense is still really good for as bad as the offense has been. Um, I think Bama will be able to win this game comfortably. I don't know how it's going to look with Milrow. This is definitely going to be a bigger challenge than facing the Arkansas defense last week, but he'll have a week to prepare as the starter if that's the way that things are going uh, with Bryce's shoulder. So I think I could see a, you know, possibly slow start, maybe for close first half, but Bama's defense has been playing really well uh, with the exception of one or two quarters this year. And I think that they will be able to give the Aggies offense, which with whichever quarterback, enough troubles to allow Bama's offense to kind of settle in and do their thing and extend this lead as the game goes on. So I like Bama. I don't know if I like him by 24 with the quarterback questions and everything. I believe in Milrow, but A&M has a good defense, and that's just a lot of points. We go to Dallas now, the Red River shootout. Oklahoma and Texas play, uh, obviously, at 11 a.m. as that game is every year. Texas is a seven-point favorite after their convincing win against the Mountaineers and Oklahoma's couple of embarrassing losses against Kansas State and TCU. Um, it's believed that Quinn Ewers is going to be back. Really excited to see him get back in action. Um, it was just horrible the way that he went down after his first quarter in the Bama game. In Oklahoma, I mean, even if they don't have Ewers playing or even if he isn't at full strength and they have to play Hudson Card some, he's been doing pretty well the last few weeks and seems to be settled into that and comfortable in that starting role. And I think that I could be comfortable in a starting role against Oklahoma's offense at this point. Texas has a couple of really good weapons on the offense, as we've talked about. Um, this line... It was they they had a little look ahead early line before this Saturday this past Saturday, and it was Oklahoma minus three. So that's jumped ten points all the way to Texas minus seven. Um, I don't know that I like laying a touchdown because this game is always funky and high scoring and weird and everything. Um, but I do think that what what we've seen out of Oklahoma the past couple weeks, I think Texas should win this game, which would be really huge for Sark and company um, after dropping an unexpected one to the Red Raiders a couple weeks ago. But 
we, we all know this game will probably be just, you know, wacky and quite bizarre as it seems to be more often than not. Lastly, we've got number 16, BYU, uh, playing Notre Dame. This game is at Allegiant Stadium, where the Raiders play in Las Vegas. Pretty cool spot to have a neutral site game if we're going to have them at all. Um, BYU is surprisingly a three-and-a-half-point underdog to Notre Dame. Don't understand this at all. We'll talk about that bet more in a minute. Um, Notre Dame has been pushed around by teams such as Marshall this year and has just and even Cal uh, gave them a way closer game than expected. I do not believe in the Irish. I don't think that they're going to be able to play with a team like BYU. BYU's four and one. Um, they defeated Baylor at home a few weeks ago in an overtime victory and they're always just older, more physical than most teams, which I think is going to give Notre Dame a lot of problems. Their quarterback has been playing really well. I don't understand them being the underdog at all. That's it for the game previews. Now, what I'm watching, the best three games in all three time slots. The morning slate this week is really, really stellar. Um, from a football perspective, I'm most excited to see Tennessee versus LSU. Uh, maybe some bias built in there with Bama playing the Vols after this weekend, but I think that that's just a tricky spot for a good Tennessee team against an LSU team that I think everyone still has a lot of questions about. So we'll see how the Vols handle that on the road. Um, also at 11 a.m. Central, we have Kansas TCU, which I'll definitely be watching a good bit of. Arkansas, Mississippi State, a couple teams in the SEC West with a lot still left to play for, and the Red River. So there's four, four really great games in the morning slate. Um, at 2.30, I think the best game will be Utah and UCLA. Uh, Auburn, Georgia is also at that time frame, but uh, if Georgia lets Auburn keep this one close, as Georgia Georgia's opponents have the last couple of years, then we'll start asking some serious questions. This one's between the hedges. There's no reason Georgia shouldn't just completely roll, um, get up for the rivalry game. But again, you know, classic awesome rivalry game. Sometimes these are weirder than we would think. So we'll see, but there's no reason Georgia shouldn't take care of business easily. And in the evening, most excited about BYU and Notre Dame. That game's at 6.30 p.m. Central. Bama A&M is at the same time, or 7 Central. Um, so those will be two exciting games to keep your eye on at night nighttime. Pac-12 after dark game of the week. We have Oregon State going to Stanford at 10 p.m., not really any other great late, late night options. Um, the Beavers are a seven point favorite, which I probably like that plus seven um, playing the one and three Stanford team. Even though Oregon State lost in a big way to Utah last week, I don't really hold that against them. We saw them keep it really close. Really, I mean, you know, control the game against USC two weeks ago. So I still believe in the Beav. And the best bet. Last week, congrats to everybody who followed Illinois plus seven. Um, they covered that by a casual 31 points, winning the game 34 to 10 outright, which moves us to four and one on the year. We are printing free money here, people. I hope 
y'all are taking advantage of some of these picks. Um, and this year, I normally don't give it out this early, but I was scared that this line might start to lose, move it against our favor. And we're taking BYU plus three and a half. Already talked about that. I think they're going to out-physical Notre Dame. I think they have more talent at the quarterback and wideout positions. And frankly, I just trust them a hell of a lot more. The only thing that gives me reservations is how I'm shocked that it's not BYU uh, favored by four or five, six, seven points in this game. So it seems like a bit of a trap, but if it is, I will be okay uh, with walking into it. And lastly, we have our Pick'em Recap. My little brother, Will, had a great 8-1 week, tying Nate in first place. Uh, so those two are atop the standings, and and Dylan is still steady in second place, four games back from them. So a lot of ball left to play. Don't forget to get your picks in every week, because unfortunately in this ESPN thing, I can't set it to where it drops your worst week if you were to just have a complete stinker or forget to get your picks in on time. So everybody has to have those set before you know the game kicks off. And you can change them up until that point, but yeah, we're just going to have to roll with it how it is. So congrats to Will and Nate, tied in first. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. We might have a special guest on next week. We'll see if we can work it out with the schedules. If not, we'll have someone else on pretty soon, so you don't have to listen to me go on and on the whole time. Um, but I appreciate y'all. I hope everybody has a fun and safe Saturday. Go Braves.